In this episode of Influencers, celebrity chef and restaurateur Wolfgang Puck. Cooking is very rewarding. You make people happy all the time. It's not like being a dentist where you hurt people. Cooking is you give people pleasure. We had the best year ever last year in Las Vegas and Spargo is open 30 years. Last year was our best year. I think prices has gone up a lot and we just had to engineer the menu a little different so not everything is expensive. Hello everyone and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer and welcome to our guest Wolfgang Puck, world-renowned celebrity chef, restaurateur, and entrepreneur. Wolfgang, nice to see you. So good to see you. Thank you. I'm and glad you could come to my restaurant. Yeah, yeah. we're here at Cut in yeah. downtown Manhattan. I should have mentioned that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, so I want to ask you, first of all, what you're up to. I mean, you've got so many different lines of business and interests, but what's the most current thing you're doing right now? Well, I am doing little things and big things. Little things like I came here with my chef, with Tetsu and with Matt, and we're gonna change the menu because springtime is here and everything. So new ingredients at the farmer's market tomorrow, we go to the fish market and see what they have. Even we are a meat restaurant, a steak restaurant, but we, I love fish too, so we're gonna see what fish they have at the market. And then big things, I'm working on a new project in Los Angeles. Uh, with Frank Gehry. He's gonna build a restaurant on the beach in Malibu, and it's gonna be the most amazing place, I think, for me to work with Frank, and uh, he came up to me and says, I wanna build a restaurant for you. So uh, I said, finally, we found a space right for him to build something, you know? So we are working on that to get all the entitlements going, you know, on the beach, it's very difficult to get uh, the Coastal Commission, the Building Commission, the uh, commission for this and commission for that, that everybody needs something or wants some money. So hopefully in a year we'll be able to start building. Frank Geary, the world famous architect. Yeah. That must be really exciting. Just what is the building going to look like? Well, I don't know yet. <laughs> right? You know, He's got to design it. It's a surprise. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to lay out the inside. Mm -hmm. You know what we have, the bar. Maybe we do a little private bar, private club. Then we have banquet. Then we have outside, a big outside desk deck overlooking the Pacific. So it's gonna be a great, great place. I think it's gonna be a new landmark in Los Angeles. Sounds awesome. And you were just up at Harvard, right? Yes. What was going on there? Well, I was teaching a class up at Harvard, really, with a professor too. They didn't leave me alone with all the students. They don't trust me that much yet. But uh, we did a case study. Boris Kreuzberg, a famous professor, that did my case study and about my life, my business life, really. Uh, and so we were talking about my life, how I built the company up at Harvard. And for me, it's really inspiring because the energy in this place is amazing. You know, they have great professors. The students are really into it. The business students really want to know more. And I go because I also want to learn from the young people, you know, how they would like to go to a restaurant. You know, I know people my age, I know what they want. but. You know, 25-year-old one might want a different experience. That's amazing. A case study about you. I wondered if you ever would have imagined that uh, growing up as a child in Austria. Oh, <laughs> you know, having never gone to high school, having never gone to college. I finished school when I was 14. I moved out of my parents' home when I was 14. Started the apprenticeship. 
then moved to France, worked in some of the great restaurants like Beaumanier and Maxim's, and then came to America. So I got to the street university. You know, you learn in the street, you learn uh, as you go along, and you learn from your mistakes. You know, if you don't do anything, you don't make mistakes. But I think I did a lot, and I made a few mistakes along the way, but I learned from it, and I think I became a better person. I became smarter on how to run a business, too. But my experience at Harvard was amazing. So they have this program, program called OPM. I was OPM in the 53rd program, and that was really, to me, something new. I arrived at Harvard, my son and my, my son Cameron lives in Boston, my daughter-in-law went to Harvard Business School, and uh, they took me to my dormitory. I never used a computer in my life. So I always have somebody else look up for everything. And then I said, I have to put my computer on. And then my son showed me how to turn it on, how to push the buttons. And I said, OK, OK, I get it tomorrow morning. I, the next morning I woke up, I pushed all the buttons at the same time. Nothing happened. I said, screw the computer. I'm going to take notes. So I arrived with a little folder, a pen, and some uh, uh, yellow pad in the classroom. I said, Professor, you don't mind if I take notes by hand, because that way I remember they sing better. So, and he said, oh, whatever you want. Old school. Yeah. Talking about your career and your journey, in the beginning in LA was Ma Maison and then of course Spago. And, and what was your vision for that restaurant? Well, Spago became really a new restaurant. It was the first restaurant with an open kitchen in the dining room. So everybody could see the chef. At that time, chefs were never well known. You know, there was the owner of the restaurant, the manager of the restaurant. And chefs were always in the background or down in the cellar. So I think when I opened Spago, I built a kitchen in the middle of the dining room. I knew some people all really well, like Billy Wilder and uh, Swifty Lazar and uh, Sidney Poitier and John Collins. So they all came up to the concert, hey, Wolfgang, how are you? And I said, OK, we have this fish today, or I'll make you a special pizza or whatever. So it was a fun atmosphere. You know, it was great food, great quality food, but in a fun atmosphere. And I think it's fair to say that you were the first celebrity chef. And I mean, you sort of started this whole wave. How do you feel about that? Or do you not like that label? It looks like you don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that label, really. Yeah. It makes my nose twitch a little bit. <laughs> so why is that? Well, because I think, what does this mean? So if you're good at the profession, uh, you know, you're a chef, you become maybe famous. But the celebrity chef, somehow the whole thing doesn't stick in my head right. And I don't know if there's another word to say it, but uh, I think because I was on television early on, I did uh, like the Johnny Carson show, the Jay Leno show, the David Letterman show in the old time, and Good Morning America I did many times. So I became well known, but I don't know why this celebrity, maybe because we had a lot of celebrities coming to the restaurant and I fed them, maybe that was part yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, it matches the, the L.A. crowd, you're yeah. right, but, but is it that you'd rather be known as a great chef? I mean, is it, do you think it detracts from your ability as a cook and a restaurateur, you mean? Yeah, I think I want to be res respected as a chef, as a businessman, but as a good person too, as a good father, and you know, one day if I die on my tombstone, if my kid's right, he was a good father, and my wife says he was a pretty good husband too, I think I would be happy. How did you have the idea to sort of take that initial restaurant and then branch it out into an empire with all these different restaurants and, and food lines and Las Vegas and all the rest? 
Well, opportunities arrived. Everybody gets opportunities in life. A lot of people, you know, are risk adverse. They won't take the opportunities. They said, no, I stay with my restaurant. I'm very happy with my restaurant or my business. I don't want to expand. And I decided, you know, I got excited about so many different things. So when uh, a second location was offered to me to open a Spargo, I said, I don't want to open another Spargo. It's too boring for me. I want to open an Asian-style restaurant. So I opened Chino on Main in Santa Monica, which was the first fusion restaurant. I didn't know about Chinese food. I built three walks. I never cooked in a walk, but I also built a charcoal grill, and I built a stove, and I built a wood-burning oven to make baking duck. So it was really, for me, an experiment. And what I love is learning on the job. I didn't go to Harvard or to Princeton. You know, I learn on the job a lot. And I think you make mistakes. Like I made this wood-burning oven to make baking ducks. The fat from the ducks dripped down. It caught fire. And the ducks were black. And I had to rip it out and build a, a gas oven to cook my uh, ducks in there. But you know, I, I had this idea. Always innovating. And I, yeah. I like that story about the uh, famous, one of your famous dishes, the, the salmon pizza, yeah. right? With, with, wasn't that Joan Collins you made yeah, before? Yeah, so what happened is we were doing uh, smoked salmon. We had a smoker. And uh, I was making our own smoked salmon. And then one day we ran out of brioche, which we served with toasted brioche, very traditional. And I don't know, uh, I was John Collins, I don't know, with some other people, they wanted to smoke salmon to start. And I said, okay, we can go to a store and find some bread. Now I said, okay, let's just cook a pizza, the pizza dough with the little onions on top and some olive oil and, and then cut it in pieces and then serve it with our smoked salmon. I did that, and while I was doing it and sending it out to the table, I said, okay, I'm just gonna put it together all at once, like lox and bagel, you know? So I used uh, the pizza dough, I picked another one. I made dill cream, which we served with the smoked salmon anyway, put that on top while the crust was still hot, covered it with smoked salmon, put chives and a little caviar on top, and the new pizza was born. You make me hungry, Wolfgang. Waiter! Yeah, okay. Got some, got some food over here. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit and maybe a little bit more serious stuff, um, restaurant business has been really hurt by COVID. Yeah. And uh, can you talk about how that's affected your businesses and just the restaurant world writ large in general? Yeah. I think uh, we, there are over 700,000 restaurants, you know, and 20% of these restaurants closed during COVID. So that's a lot. And mainly small family restaurants. So it was a terrible period for small owners. A lot of restaurants barely make it or they, they make it so it's like your job basically. You get paid as the manager or the chef. Maybe the wife is out front or the man is cooking or whatever it is. And they have a little business but they're very proud of it and a lot of them had to close down like that. I think for us, thank God, we had more restaurants so we survived. But our catering business went to zero. You know, we do catering, for example, at Sony Pictures. We do uh, catering at Netflix, at CAA, at Beats, in LA alone, and then at Georgia Aquarium and many other places. That shut, shut down totally. Nobody went to the office. Nobody did a movie premiere. Nobody did a wedding. So we went from doing probably 15 million a month, 15 million a month in catering, we went to zero. There was nothing. I had three employees in the kitchen. I kept them. And then I had one manager. So we were from four people and 
On a good day, we have a thousand people working. So that was really hard. The restaurants, we tried to do takeout. It worked in some places, okay. Why? Because I kept my people working. Even we lost money, but I said, I don't want to lose my good people. So we kept it open with takeout. Now, some things worked very well. Like I did Wednesday night fried chicken. That was our biggest success. And then, uh, uh, then when we opened again, I remember, okay, people came back. I actually built a pavilion in the street in Los Angeles outside of Spago. So when we could open again, it had six foot separation from the table, not more than four people or five people at the table. So we had all these rules going on. You had some inspectors coming with a stick and measuring if it's six feet, if it was six inches short. Uh, uh, they said, oh, you have to move and uh, we're going to write you up. And I said, you know what, if the virus knows if it's five foot six or six feet, you know, what's the difference? You know, they're, they're so picky. And uh, then we closed again. Uh, that was a little over a year ago. And that was how I still did take out and we lost like 150000 a month. So in, three, in two months, we lost over $300,000. Then finally, last February, we opened again. We finished our pavilion outside. We could sit enough people so that it made sense. And people were happy to go out again. So that was really lucky. And I think here in New York was the same. We set people outside. Even if it was cold, they were happy to go to a restaurant. And, and where do things stand now, Wolfgang? How, how's the business? Is, are you, you back to 100%? What percent do you think you are now? Uh, in a lot of restaurants, we are back to 100%. Maui, for example, Spago Maui is doing better than ever. Mm. Las Vegas is off the charts. It's really busy. Uh, the hotel's making record profits. We had the best year ever last year in Las Vegas, and Spago is open 30 years. Last year was our best year. This year is even better. So it's really amazing, Las Vegas. Catering has come back. Not to the extent where we were, maybe we're going to do six million a month instead of double of that, but at least there is progress. Uh, some of the restaurants in the airports, we had to close a lot of them. There was no air traffic. So now they are coming back. We just opened the first one after the pandemic, coincidentally in Vienna, in Austria. So we opened a restaurant at the airport in Schwerkart last week. There are two things, though, vexing people in your business right now, and I want to ask you about them. It's a one-two punch, which is supply chain, sourcing, and then salaries yeah. of employees. So can you take those one at a time, please? You know, the first thing, supplies. That has changed a lot. It has gotten up in price tremendously, like a beef tenderloin went from $36 to $52 a day pound. So it's really a total almost a 40% increase. So that was really, really hard. Fish, the same. Vegetable, the same. Because truck drivers were hard to find. They couldn't deliver their food. They had to, the people who had the warehouses or whatever, they had to pay them overtime. They delivered at midnight because there were so few people working. So I think prices has gone up a lot. And we just had to engineer the menu a little different so not everything is expensive because soon we're gonna, gonna come, you know, where a really good steak will cost 95 to $100 and it's getting a little expensive. So we try to balance the menu. Yes, if you want a real good piece of meat, it's very expensive, but we also can give you a good meal 
and uh, without having that meat. You know, that's fascinating because I was going to ask you if you were able to or willing to pass it on to customers those higher costs or whether you were eating it, pun intended. Yeah. But actually there's a third solution, which is recalibrating the menu. Yeah. That's amazing. So what about uh, getting employees, though, and wages? How's uh, that going? That's the hardest part. You know, getting new employees, getting the old one to come back. A lot of the employees in our industry changed their lifestyle. They said, we don't want to work on Mother's Day, on Christmas Eve, on uh, New Year's Eve, Saturday, Sunday, come home at one in the morning, you know. We want to change it. And they went in different direction, do different things. Like I saw a uh, waiter from Spargo, actually, and, uh, in a restaurant. And I said, oh, Omar, what are you doing? He said, I'm in the construction business. I said, in the construction business, you are such a good waiter, how can you do this? He said, you know, I make at least as much money as I did in the restaurant, and every Saturday, Sunday, I'm off. I go home Friday at 4 in the afternoon, and I have the weekend with my family. So he said, you know, we live just as well. Maybe it was uh, more fun being in a dining room and uh, with the camaraderie, even the, all the waiters, the chefs. But he said, you know, I have to look out for my family. So a lot of these people didn't want to come back. Little by little, they are, trying, they are coming back. We have waiters at Spargo who make over $120,000, $150,000. So it's not a job which doesn't pay well either. And still it's hard to find people. The same thing with chefs. You know, it's really difficult. What about... Uh tipping or not tipping. You know, Danny Meyer here in New York famously got rid of tipping, then I think he's had to reintroduce it. Yeah. Where, where do you stand on that for the waiters? You know, sometimes when something is so ingrained in the people who work and in the customer, it's very difficult to change. Well, I am, as, as a chef, I would say I would love, every chef should make the same amount as a waiter. So maybe we put on a, a service charge and we can spread it out evenly. If a chef's making 120,000, the waiter makes 120,000, you know, so it would be more even. But I think by tipping, especially in high-end restaurants, waiters make really good money. They have sure responsibility, let's say, for two times four tables, two seatings have four tables each, but I think they make really good money. And the responsibility is for these four tables, whereas a chef, has to manage maybe 40 people in the kitchen. He has to look that every food comes out perfect, that they buy the right things, that everybody clocks in at the same time. They clock out when they go to lunch or to dinner. You know, the labor department will be after you if you don't do it right. So there's a lot of work going on and the base scale is lower. So I'm trying to bridge the gap, the gap so that way we get a little closer. The late Anthony Bourdain famously wrote about culture in restaurants, yeah. Kitchen Confidential. Uh -huh. And I'm wondering what you think about that and if you try to instill a culture uh, at your restaurants, maybe even across the entire company. Yeah, we really have our distinctive culture. You know, that's the hardest thing is to create a culture. Why do we have a good culture? We have people with us for many, many years. Like, I have a chef here, Matt, he's with me for 28 years. Chef Tetsu, he works with us in Tokyo. He's with me for 20 years. Bella, who runs Chinois in Santa Monica, is me since 39 years. So they know what I like. They know 
how I like uh, things done. And they basically are the same as me. You know, they know we are in the hospitality business. We have to do everything to make the customers happy. And I think for us, word of mouth is still the most important publicity we can get. I mentioned Tony Bourdain, I mentioned Danny Meyer. Yeah. Did you know those guys or no, no Tony, new Tony, no Danny? Do you hang out with all, you guys all hang out together? How does that work? What's that crowd like? Or is there a crowd? Yeah, no, no, I hang out with some people. You know, obviously I live in Los Angeles, so I don't hang out with Danny Meyer uh, as much. But when I come to the city, I go see Daniel Boulou uh, in his restaurant, or he comes to my restaurant, or Eric Repair, or some other chefs here. In LA, you know, I'm very good friends with Nobu, and uh, whenever I need something, I call Nobu and said, you know, I'm coming with four people to your new restaurant. He said, no problem, come, and then he comes to our restaurant. So I think we are, it's a good com camaraderie in between all the chefs, more so than owners, and we are not jealous of each other because everybody is talented, everybody is thinking, doing pretty well, some better than some others, but everybody is passionate about the same thing. It seems like, Wolfgang, Americans have become a lot more sophisticated about food. Oh, well, certainly in your lifetime, you've seen a revolution uh, in this know, country. You know, I started in Indianapolis, and believe me, they didn't know how to cut meat, a steak. They put the fork in and cut the steak in pieces, put the hand down, and then they ate it like that. And I said, where did these people learn how to eat with the knife and the fork? And I remember I went in the dining room, and I never told it to... Uh, with parents, but when I saw kids and they did the same thing, I, I told them, let me show you how we eat. So I took their hand, <laughs> both hands and with a fork, stick it in the meat, and then you cut a small piece and you know, lift it up and eat it. And the parents looked at me and said, what the heck is he doing, you know? That's amazing. But, but people's not only learning how to eat properly, I guess, but also just in terms of all the different types of food. I mean, when I was young, there was like, you know, 25 things in the supermarket, now there's 25,000. And, and so what do you attribute that to, number one? And number two, where is all this going? What, what are the trends that people will be gravitating towards? You know, when I started out, if you wanted fresh basil, there was none in the supermarket. If you wanted arugula, there was none in the supermarket. You had iceberg lettuce, romaine lettuce, and maybe butter lettuce, and that was it. Now you can find all kind of fresh herbs, uh, mini herbs, and micro herbs, and you can find so many different uh, varieties of vegetables which you never were there before. I think the supermarket really followed restaurants, upscale restaurants, like for example us at Cato at Spargo, we went directly to the farmer and says, please grow that for us. So they grow some of the best strawberries, the Mara de Bois strawberries, which I had in south of France. So we brought them seeds and they planted then uh, the strawberries. The same thing with white corn. All of a sudden people loved white corn because they grew it really also organically. So we demanded much more and we demanded quality. Before it was always farming was quantity. You know, you had these factory farms up and down the Central Valley in California, which is the biggest farming community in the world probably, but you had all big 10,000 acre farms with the big machines and nobody had passion for it. Now we have a farmer's market, for example, which is amazing in LA, in, in every part of town. In the old time, I used to go down to the Chino farm in Rancho Santa Fe and pick up their vegetables, pick up the strawberries, the tomatoes, 
smelled like tomatoes. You know, it was such a big difference. And our customers started to know this. I remember bringing these beautiful strawberries, and Johnny Carson comes up to me and says, what did you do to these strawberries? I never saw them like that. I said, I didn't do nothing. All I did is pick them up at the farm. And then he tasted it and said, oh my God, I never had strawberries like that. So that's really the difference. You know, if you box up melon in October and you eat them in March, they're not going to have much flavor. But if you get them ripe, if you get things picked ripe and you eat it, it's such a big difference. If you get a beach picked ripe from the tree and you smell it and you taste it and it's juicy, it's such a big difference. The same thing with fish. I used to go to the fish market every morning to get fish. Why? Because I want to pick the best one. And the Japanese chefs went and I went. I was the only one from the Caucasian restaurants you know, who went to the fish market. But I said, okay, I like this tuna. I like this salmon better because it has more fat on the belly, so I know it's going to be richer. And even here, I'm here today. Well, guess what I'm going to do tomorrow morning? I'm going to go to the fish market. Yeah, I was really impressed that you're still out pounding the yeah. pavement doing that. Wow, that brings to mind a whole other uh, category of food, though, which is human-made food. And let's just start with plant-based meat. Yeah. I mean, this is a meat restaurant, you know, the Beyond Burgers and all that stuff. Yeah. What do you think about it? Would you ever serve it? Do you serve it? Um, what's, your, what's your take on that? Wolfgang? You know, we serve, like at the Belair, we had the demand, so we used the Impossible Meat, which is similar to Beyond. Yeah, yeah, Impossible and Beyond, right. But I think you can actually do things really well. The problem is, like with Beyond and some of these people, they serve the lowest de de denominator. You know, they serve Pizza Hut and uh, Burger King and whatever. And this meat is not good as a hamburger. Yes, if you put barbecue sauce, onion, uh, uh, ketchup, Jeez. mayonnaise, cheese on it, yeah, it, you will taste all these ingredients, but not the meat. But I think I also found out now people are actually growing meat from the cells. I talked to a, a scientist in Tel Aviv, and he invited me a few times, so I'm going to go see him uh, early summer and see, because he told me his meat which is grown out of a cell, tastes as good as the meat we have. I said, you know what? You can tell me a lot of stories. My parents used to read to me stories late night to put me to sleep. I'm going to come and taste what you do, and then I will decide if we can use it. Maybe there is a way where we don't have to grow or raise so many cows and have all the greenhouse gases and everything, which I think 25% or whatever it is comes from uh, pasture from cows. Right, and then there's plant-based fish. I don't know if you've even thought about that one. Yeah. I have never tried one. You know, I tried these plant-based uh, uh, meats, uh, but I have never tried the fish, and I'm sure if they can make meat, they can make uh, the fish uh, thing the same. I think fishing has gone a little farther. They have some of the farm-raised fishes. Some of them do a good job. Some of them do a bad job. Some of them pollute the ocean more than anything, you know. And then even the wild fish get sick from them. Yeah. Uh, but I think if they do it right, like we have up in uh, Vancouver, a salmon farm, and they are doing a pretty good job. And I also go to see them what they do. Like the same way I went to Snake River Farm up in Idaho to see how they raise the cattle for our Snake River Farm beef here for the, our cut restaurant. Right. Are you surprised, Wolfgang, that, um, that the restaurant business hasn't been taken over more, maybe, I should say, by corporations. 
In other words, you look at like, let's say, supermarkets and Amazon owns Whole Foods. Yeah. How come Amazon wouldn't buy a whole huge chain of rest, maybe your empire? Well, I think Bezos certainly has the money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But why would somebody buy that without buying me? You know, restaurants really today, especially a lot of this restaurant, call it uh, multiple restaurants like Daniel has or Sean George's or Novo has, you know, they depend a lot on one person still. Maybe when in the next generation, they would say, okay, now we have find the formula to operate them without the figurehead, without the founder, it might be possible. You know, they did that in fashion. You know, uh, Karl Lagerfeld died a few years ago. Chanel is doing as well as ever. Yves Saint Laurent died a long time ago. Saint Laurent has gotten bigger. Uh, Valentino retired. Now it's twice as big his business. I don't know in the fine dining restaurant if that is possible, you know, because you need the talent. And, you know, talent is very hard to come by. But I'm not saying if somebody has a lot of money, they couldn't probably do it. They could probably do it by getting the right people and giving them control. You cannot control really a chef and say, okay, the food cost has to be 28% per, uh, and the labor cost has to be 30%. That's the way it has to be. You know, it varies. Sometimes the food is more expensive. Sometimes labor is more expensive. And if you want to have a great restaurant, maybe the labor cost has to be 35. Maybe the food cost has to be 33. Maybe the wine cost has to be 25, you know. So it's really, really hard to make profit in the upscale restaurants. Well, you obviously are, are still so passionate about this. How many restaurants do you have? Well, we have 25 restaurants mm -hmm. uh, all over the world. You know, uh, we have cut here in New York, we have cut in London, then we are in Budapest, Istanbul, in the Middle East, and Singapore, Maui, Las Vegas and LA are two main cities. We have five and five restaurants in each one. I still continue to expand. As I told you before, we're gonna build this restaurant with Frank Gehry on the beach yeah. in LA. And then we're going to open some new restaurants in uh, Riyadh and Jeddah, also Kuala Lumpur, So, but over time. You have these kids. Are they going to follow in your footsteps and, and join the business? Or are they in the business? Well, I'm so proud. I have one son, Byron. He went to Cornell, the hotel school. He worked with some of the best restaurants, including Eric Repair and Bernadine here. He looked with, worked with Guy Savoy in Paris, with the Roca Brothers in Spain. He now opened his first restaurant in L.A. called Merois, and he's doing a great job. He's not only a good cook, but he's also very personable, and he's very good in hospitality. He's so passionate about it. When he did his college application, the only application he sent out with was to Cornell. And I told him, what about if they don't take you? He said, I don't care. Then I come to work for you. So he only wanted to learn about our industry, and he is really passionate, and I love that. Like, for example, at New Year's, we go to Maui every year. We have Spago at the Four Seasons in Maui. And I said, Byron, you want to come for a few days? He says, Papa, I just opened a restaurant. This is my first New Year, and you want me to leave the restaurant alone? He said, I cannot come, so you go. That's dedicated. Someone yeah. asks you to go to Maui for New Year's, and you say, no, i got to work. Last question, Wolfgang. This uh, program is called Influencers, so I'm wondering if you thought about how you'd like to, how you, to this day, use your influence on the world. 
Well, I think hopefully we can influence a lot of people to be better people. The employees not only have to be good in the kitchen or in the dining room, they have to also be good people. I think that's an important part. I think I want to influence people, especially young people, to go into our profession and they know they can do a great job and get them excited about it. I'm actually working with somebody building a cooking school also to get more minorities involved in the upscale dining. Cooking is very rewarding. You make people happy all the time. It's not like being a dentist where you hurt people. Cooking is you give people pleasure. So I want people to enjoy it. And hopefully, I can influence people even the next 20 years, 10 years, whatever it is, to become great people, but really to enjoy the hospitality industry. Wolfgang Puck, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.